0: Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, May 19th, 2022. Our Torah portion this Shabbos, the Parsha Bahar, begins with the laws of Shemitah, the sabbatical year. And this Jewish year, 5782, is a Shemitah year. We are in the middle of Shemitah observance. I had the privilege to share with you four sessions on this subject earlier this year, just after Rosh Hashanah. And tonight I'd like to add several ideas that we have not yet covered. So during the Shemitah year in Israel, we're not allowed to plant anything. And what grows on its own cannot be harvested by the owner. Rather, it is available freely to anyone to come and to take it for themselves. Now, many people assume that the Torah law of Shemitah, of a sabbatical year, an agricultural sabbatical year, is to increase the growth of crops. The land gets worn out, you let it lay fallow for a year, and then you have revitalized it and rejuvenated it, and it will produce more the next year. Now, this used to be a widely held belief It turns out not to be true. What actually increases the yield of crops is when you rotate the crops, when you grow different things year after year, not necessarily leaving it fallow for a year, but leaving that aside, nowhere does the Torah make that claim. The Torah does give us the reason for this mitzvah, and it's quite radical, we've discussed it before, the Torah says in our parsha, God says, ki li the land, God says, the earth belongs to me, to God. ki geirim you, me, we, we are sojourners. We are strangers, aliens. We're, 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 we're hanging around, but we're not the owners. It belongs to God. Shemitah is the reminder it's not our land, it's God's. And so one year out of every seven, God asserts his ownership by denying us its use. Now, the other six years, we have the right to use it, but we don't own it. It's not ours. We're not the owners. We are the stewards, the caretakers. And this fundamental principle expressed by the detailed agricultural laws of Shemitah is universal in its application. We don't own our land. We don't own our possessions. We don't own our bodies. We are stewards, caretakers of God's world and everything in it. Now, in this week's total portion, we find a very stark example of this in a completely different realm of life. The Torah says in our parsha, al meito neshech. If one Jew when one Jew lends money money to another Jew, we're not allowed to charge interest. I must be willing to lend the money without receiving any interest. The question is why? I mean, interest is, after all, simply paying for using my money. I have money. I could invest it and perhaps earn a profit, but instead I'm going to lend it to you. So I am giving up the profit that I might otherwise earn from it. So I have the right. Why don't I have the right to charge you for the use of my money? It is a a good Why can't I charge you for it? I'm allowed to charge you for using my car. I can rent my car to you and you can pay for it. I can charge you for my tool. If you want to rent my tool, you can rent it and I can take money for it. You can rent my house. You can rent my field. All those things. I'm allowed to charge you if I let you use it. Why can't I charge you if I let you use my money? Why is it different than any other object or possession? And the answer is there is no logical reason. There is no logical differentiation between my money and everything else. The reason that we're not allowed to is because God says so in our Parsha. Don't charge interest. But hold on a second. It's my money. How can you tell me what to do with my money? it's mine. No, it's not your money. It's not my money. It's God's money. And God allows you or me to use this money on the condition that we follow God's instructions. And God's instructions are in order to help another Jew who needs a loan I have to be willing to sacrifice the profit I might be able to gain. And I have to lend it without interest. That's God's rule. There's an amazing detail of Jewish law. Person passes away normally their estate is divided among all of the person's heirs. Let's just say, for example, a man passes away. Let's say he has several children. The estate is divided among all the heirs. What happens in the following case? A person writes a document that says, I want my entire estate to go to only one of my children. Now, if we know that there is some reason that this man actually meant for this to take place, whatever the scenario is, whatever the situation is, but we have uh, uh, insight that he actually did mean there was a reason he, ha- he did mean for everything to go to one. So then we respect that. I mean, it's a problem that might cause some kind of jealousy or enmity, but, but we, if a person does that, we respect that. However, in the absence of that kind of information, if there's nothing on the surface that we know of that would indicate why a person would favor one child over the others and disinherit all the others, we assume that the reason the the man wrote this instruction to give everything to one child is that that child is being appointed as an apotropos, a trustee, and that trustee, that heir is required to share the inheritance with all of the children, with all the heirs. And the reason that the father would have done this is to to, to give everything to one child who he trusts will then distribute it properly. It's not that he wants the one child to have it all. He doesn't love one child more than the other. He just feels that this child will be responsible in this situation to share it equally with everyone. Okay. That's a detail of Jewish law in Jewish estate law, but this is likewise the way to understand how can there be some people in the world who are wealthy and some people in the world who are impoverished? Why does one have more than the other? It can't be that God loves one person more than another. We're all God's children. Why does one person have more than the other? And the answer is the same principle. If you have been given more, it's not yours. You have been appointed as an apotropis, a trustee. It has been put in your possession in order for you to distribute it to others. You are a trustee. You are a steward. It doesn't belong to you. And that's why, by the way, that we try not to use the word charity. We all know that there's a very important Jewish concept called tzedakah, some people translate that word as charity, but that's not a precise translation because the word charity, the English word charity, implies that I'm giving you something from the goodness of my heart. It is an altruistic practice. But that's not correct. The word tzedakah actually means, from the word tzedek, what is just, what is right, what is correct. because it's not yours to begin with. It was just put into your possession in order for you to share it with others. So you're not doing something altruistic. You're doing what God has said is right to do with that money. Tzedakah, what is right, what is just. And by doing so, to recognize who the real owner is. Okay, so if you're a farmer in Israel during the Shemitah year, you're not going to plant. You're not going to harvest. So what are you going to eat? And especially imagine if everyone is doing it. If everyone is observing this rule, no one's planting, no one's harvesting. What is everyone going to eat? Our parsha says, and when you ask the question, what are we going to eat during the Shemitah year? We haven't planted anything. Then we have not gathered, we're not gathering anything. We're not harvesting anything. So if you ask the question, so, okay, fine. But what, what are we going to eat? Says God. I will direct my blessing to you to you. in the sixth year. That would have been last year, the year before Shemitah. There'll be a miracle that in the sixth year, the harvest will be three times the normal amount. Now, just in parentheses, you see from this, directed to what I said before. Not only does the Torah not make a claim that the reason for Shemitah is to improve the land, the opposite. The Torah is saying here, God is going to cause that the sixth year, which it's been planted every year for six years, you would expect it to be its weakest. And God's saying, no, that it'll be a triple harvest. Okay, that's in parentheses. So the sixth year is going to give you, there's going to be a miracle and there's going to be a threefold harvest, three times normal harvest. So you're not going to plant during the seventh year, but you're going to plant in the eighth year. But that also means in the eighth year, you're not going to be able to harvest anything until the end of the year, right? Because you can only start to plant at the beginning of the eighth year. So you're not going to get food until the end of the eighth year when it finally grows and is harvested. So, for the sixth year, you're going to eat the produce the sixth year, and in the seventh year, and in the eighth year, three years you're going to subsist on that sixth year crop harvest. Ad hashana until you get to the ninth year. That's now the second year of the next shemitah cycle. Ad bo tuvasa yasan until you get that ninth. In the ninth year, you get that new crop, you're going to keep eating from that same sixth year. So there's this amazing miracle. Wow, it's amazing. If you ask, what am I going to eat? God is going to bring this miracle, an open miracle. You'd be able to measure it. You'd be able to see it. Everyone would know about it. A threefold crop? Let me ask you a question. What if you don't ask the question? The Torah says, V'chisomru. If you ask the question, what are we going to eat? Then God will command, God will will bring about that the six-year crop will be a triple crop. Ask the Siporno, one of the classic commentators. What if you don't ask? What if you don't ask the question? Says the Siporno, that's covered by the previous verse. I didn't read this to you yet. The previous verse reads as follows. ha'aretz piriya, in the sixth year, the earth will bring forth its fruits. And you will eat and be satisfied. And you will live, dwell securely in your land. What does it mean? You will eat and you will be satisfied. A rabbi say something a little bit different than the other approach. A rabbi say, you're going to have just a little bite but it's going to fill you as if it was three bites. So you're only going to need a third of the food each day. So it's going to be a normal crop in the sixth year, but it's going to last for three years because your stomach is going to fill up quicker with less food. It'd be a great idea if you could do this for a diet. Wow, it'd be amazing. That's like a a smaller miracle, right? Because that's not so obvious. I mean, how full a person feels after the first bite of food, that's not something that you can measure. That's not something that everybody sees. That's a small miracle, a a hidden miracle. It's a miracle to have one bite and have it uh, fulfill you like it's three bites. That's a miracle, but it's a hidden miracle. It's a smaller miracle. Which is better? Which is the preferable approach to take? Is it better for a Jewish person to not ask the question and just, I'm not asking, I'm not worried. I have trust in God. It's going to be okay. I don't even have to ask the question. God said to do it. I'm doing it. God's going to take care of it. Is that the preferable approach or is the preferable approach that a person should ask the question, should inquire, God, how are we going to do this? Now, you might think that you have an intuitive answer to that question, but let's just follow through what the response is going to be. Let's compare those two miracles because if a person asks the question, there's going to be this open, overt, giant miracle of a threefold increase in the six-year crop. If a person does not ask, and that sounds like it's a bigger miracle. It sounds like maybe that's the right path, but if a person doesn't even ask. Maybe we might think that person has more faith, but they're only rewarded with a smaller hidden miracle. Why should that be? So I want to share with you an insight that Rabbi Zev left, among others, explains, and it is a very important, foundational, fundamental principle. And it is something that so many people make a mistake about. It's extremely important to get this straight. There's a concept called bitachon. Bitachon means trust. If a person has bitachon, it means they trust in God. They have faith in God. A person should do that. A person should trust in God. A person should have faith in God. Now, some say what that means to have trust in God to have bitachon, faith in God means don't worry, God's gonna take care of it, it's gonna be okay. Person gets sick, have bitachon, they'll get better, God's gonna take care of it. If you trust in God, it's gonna be okay. Person loses their job, have bitachon, trust in God, you'll get another job, it's gonna be all right, God's gonna take care of you. Everyone is not planting for an entire year. Don't worry. God's going to take care of it. God's going to provide. You don't have to worry. That's not bitacha. That's not trusting God. That's being naive. And if a person is naive, they just think somehow it's going to work out. God provides that person with a minor miracle. God takes care of them, but in a minor way, in a hidden way, because that's not the preferred approach a person should take to life. Bitachon means authentic trust in God and faith in God means to first of all, recognize when there is a problem and to realize I've got to find ways to overcome this problem, to meet this challenge. I can't just blithely assume it's going to be okay because it's not going to be okay unless I take some steps to make it okay. And of course, included in those steps that I have to take is prayer and the merit of mitzvahs of good deeds. But a person should worry about not planting and not harvesting. And a person should ask God. And and the question will go like this, Master of the Universe, I'm gonna keep your mitzvah. You commanded it, or I'm gonna do it. I have to confess, I don't understand it. And I need some help because I just can't see, God, how I'm gonna overcome the difficulty that the mitzvah you're commanding presents. So I'm asking you this question, God, because I'm asking you for help, because I want to keep your mitzvah, but I I need help to figure out how it's going to work. That's when God rewards the person with a bigger miracle. Because that's the approach a person should take. That is what it means to have trust in God, to have faith in God, to ask the question, to realize I've got to take some steps and then to turn to God as one of those steps. I want to share with you an insight from Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinrich. Okay, so let's pretend you're a farmer in Israel. You're observing Shemitah. So that means during the Shemitah year, during this entire year, you can't plant, you can't fertilize, you can't prune, you can't harvest. So many things that you would be busy doing the other six years, you can't do them during Shemitah. Of course, it only applies in Israel. But I've shared with you before that the idea of Shemitah, the lessons that we learn from Shemitah, are relevant to every single one of us today, wherever we are. And so we need to focus on what these lessons are, even if we are not observing the agricultural laws of Shemitah, because the ideas, the concepts are relevant and applicable to every one of us. The first amazing lesson is what I just discussed a few minutes ago, where God says, Kili Haaretz, the earth and everything in it belongs to God. We're stewards. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine if we really lived our lives like that and we need to try, but imagine what, for example, imagine what our attitude to the environment would be, what our actions towards the environment would be if we really acted based on the principle that we are stewards in charge of taking care of God's earth. Imagine our attitude to accumulating wealth, Our attitude to possessions, it would be completely different, radically transformed. And this year, we should try to concern ourselves with this idea and to implement it, to incorporate it into our lives. And not only for this year, to take that attitude forward, because it is a truth that is expressed in this mitzvah, but it's expressed, it applies in every single area of life, as we discussed. Okay. Okay. Let me share a second idea, because there's very little focus on the following question. In fact, the question that I'm going to pose in a moment is not addressed in the Torah at all. And I'm going to suggest to you that this question, which I'm going to pose in a moment, even if we don't have Shemitah, even if it's not practically applicable to us, This question is so important for us to ask and to consider. And the question is as follows. What do you do all day long during Shemitah? Assume you're a farmer in Israel. You're observing these laws. For six years, you're working hard every day from sunrise to sunset and probably in the night as well. Summer, winter, fall and spring, not a moment's rest. That's the life of a farmer. In the seventh year, almost none of that work is allowed. What do you do with all that free time? Let me put it in different terms. If you were given a sabbatical leave from your job for one year and Let's assume your income is, at least your basic income is taken care of. How would you spend your time? And this is an extremely important question because if you think about this question, you'll realize the answer will get to the heart of who you are as a person. So I'll share my answer with you. Now, I just want to say before I go any further, I have not discussed this with Marcy. So whatever I say now is subject to her agreement. But the first thing I would do if I had a sabbatical, I would not use an alarm clock. I hate an alarm clock. I use an alarm clock every single day of my life and I hate it. So that's the first thing I would do. I get rid of the alarm clock. I would wake up when I wake up probably still wake up at 4.30 in the morning, but I get rid of the alarm clock. I would spend more time with my family, for sure. I would go to Israel. Now, I realize those two goals are, they can't coexist. They're contradictory. Okay, I understand that. But, but this is what I would want to do. I would go to Israel. I would spend part of each day studying Torah. That is not related to what I am teaching or what I'm doing professionally because it's something I feel about myself. I don't do enough of that. Thank God I have the opportunity to study Torah in order to prepare to teach, in order to do my work. Thank God it's an amazing uh, privilege, but I don't spend. I don't. It's my fault. It's a shortcoming. I don't spend enough time studying Torah for its own sake. I would spend more time doing that. And I would also spend part of each time learning some new skills. I don't know what exactly, but I would want to learn something new. I don't know, something. But it's an amazing question. Think about it. What would you do? Rabbi Elia Lapian, a great scholar, lived almost 100 years ago. One said, modern man is convinced that time Is money. Spiritual man knows that time is life. Hillel Zeitlin was a journalist, a philosopher, a mystic who wrote a number of poems in the form of prayers. He was a victim of the Holocaust. He wrote a poem titled, On the Threshold of My Erev Shabbat. Erev Shabbat means Eve of Shabbos, refers to Friday. On the threshold of my Friday, my Erev Shabbat. Now, he writes this poem just before his 50th birthday. He's about to turn 50. He's about to enter the sixth decade of his life. So listen to what he writes. Life is like the days of the week, each decade a day. The seventh decade day is our soul's Sabbath and we are but granted seven days. I am at the brink of Friday, Erev Shabbat, for my tired spirit entering the sixth decade, the sixth day. I pray that my Friday will be a proper preparation that I can use it for personal repair. For five days, his first 50 years, I have wandered, nay, strayed. This day, Friday, the sixth decade, I hope to rediscover the path and return before Shabbat Eve's sun sets. The mitzvah of Shemitah even if we don't observe personally the agricultural parts of it, should give us time consciousness. How do we spend our time? What would we do if we had extra time? And by the way, this is not only relevant to Shemitah, this is practical for us on a weekly basis because this is what Shabbat is for. After all, the Torah makes it clear that the Shemitah is Shabbat on a a wider scale. Shabbat is every seven days, Shemitah is every seven years. But every Shabbat we have the opportunity for renewal and reflection and to attend to those parts of life that we neglected during the week. And I'm not referring to golf. Okay. Finally, let's return to the technical, detailed agricultural observance of Shemitah in Israel. Now, earlier this year, we discussed several options of how this works practically in our modern society with global commerce. And we discussed that the most widespread practice of what is actually happening in Israel today on the part of farmers and on the part of most citizens in Israel, people living in Israel, is to sidestep the entire issue through heter mechira. Heter mechira means the leniency of relying on selling the entire land of Israel to a non-Jewish person for the entire year, which the chief rabbis do before every Shemitah year as they did just about a year ago before this current Shemitah year. So if you sell the entire land of Israel to a non-Jewish person, if the land belongs to a non-Jewish person, we assume I'm allowed to work the land, I'm allowed to plant, I'm allowed to harvest. I go about life as, as normal. Now, when we discuss this, I explain that this is a valid approach, even though it's quite controversial. But utilizing this approach is also, it's a shame. Because with this approach, there is no residue. There's no awareness of the sublime practice of Shemitah as God intended it. It's bypassed. And we lose all of the meaning, all of the value that this incredible mitzvah is supposed to bestow. It may be necessary and it may be correct. Although again, it's very controversial. But at the same time, it's still a shame. But I want to tell you about Daron Toeg and his wife Ilana Toeg. The two of them are farmers in Israel. In the past, they were major growers of eggplant. In fact, one of the largest producer food producers in Israel is a company called Strauss. You may be familiar with it. It's a gigantic company. This couple, Daron and Ilana, they were the company's exclusive eggplant supplier. That's quite a contract to have. They were big in eggplant. Until 2014, which was the previous Shemitah year before this one, when they decided that they were going to comply with the Torah laws in our portion, and they were not going to harvest any crop. And that means they had nothing to sell to Strauss or anyone else. Doron said, Strauss thought I'd fallen on my head. And the company severed their ties with them because how are you going to do business? You're exclusive supplier of eggplant and then one whole year, they're not going to provide you with anything. How can you do business with such a person? So Strauss cut them off as well as some other customers. And yet, what happened is this made the toe eggs into central figures in the growing movement of Jews in Israel, who are no longer making use of that loophole of selling the land, and they are withholding from planting and harvesting during the Shemitah year, just as our Torah portion details. This past September, the beginning of this Shemitah year, in the first two weeks, Darone estimates that about 3,000 people came to visit him to ask him for a blessing. The first man that came to ask Darone to bless him had in his hand a piece of paper which was an instruction from Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky He was perhaps the greatest rabbi within the Haredi world in Israel. He passed away a number of months ago. We spoke about him. And Rabbi Kanievsky, before the Shemitah year, very near the end of his life, he had written the following letter that said that everyone should seek out a blessing from a farmer who observes the laws of Shemitah because, I'm quoting in English, There is no one more filled with faith in God than a person who is a farmer in Israel and who is keeping the laws of Shemitah. Okay, fine. But but he does, does still have to feed his family. He still has to put food on the table. So he and thousands of other Israeli farmers this year are being helped by an organization called Karen Hashavias, which translates as the Shemitah Fund. It's a nonprofit organization that raises funds to help farmers get through this year. This year, the organization Karen Hashavias is going to distribute $66 million US to subsidize Israeli farmers who aren't producing crops. Now, here's the amazing thing. Daron is not an Orthodox Jew. And before 2014, he just went about his business. He farmed like usual, assuming that the hetar that the sale was valid and relying on that. And he just kept doing what he was doing the other six years. No change. But before the last in 2014, His wife, Ilana, had already told him, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to observe the laws of Shemitah. We're we're, we're going to stop work in the Shemitah year. And she says that she did it for completely secular reasons. It was for completely selfish reasons, she said. I wanted him to rest. She wanted Daron to take it easy for a year. So you're going to observe Shemitah in forced vacation. And then... Daron had a chance encounter, I'll say chance in quotation marks because nothing is chance in this world, with a young Orthodox Jew a month before Rosh Hashanah was going to begin in 2014. That's a month before the beginning of the previous Shemitah year. And this encounter with this Orthodox Jew pushed Darone and Ilana to take on this mitzvah completely in 2014 because this young Orthodox Jew said to Daron, you're going to give up so easily on a mitzvah that we've waited for 2000 years in exile to be able to perform. And Daron said that touched something in, inside of me. And I thought if I won't do this mitzvah, who will? This year, Karen Hashvias is supporting more than 3,500 farmers in Israel who are not planting and not harvesting. They represent 170,000 acres of land in Israel that is laying fallow this year. And they contribute up to 45% of each farmer's operating expenses for this year. And there are some other sources of support to keep families going during this year. Who decide to observe this completely? There are subsidies from the other gov- from the government. There are some other sources. And Ilana Toeg notes that there are other benefits of observing these laws the way the Torah describes it, even if they're not so-called spiritual reasons. There's the environmental impact. Shemitah ingrains values of sustainability. During this Shemitah year, there'll be a vast reduction of the amounts of water and energy that are consumed. And also, it's incredible, she says, there is an upside to the financial constraints that will be necessary because of their reduced income. Having to tighten your belt makes you think about everything you buy before you buy it. And she said, it's about getting priorities and remembering what's important in life. Shmita means you stop the rat race. And suddenly, you have time to focus on the spiritual and time to spend with your family. And that is a message every one of us should learn from our Torah portion this Shabbos. And we should emphasize this year, this Shemitah year, and we should incorporate it into our lives going forward, wherever we are. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful night and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.